You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. You may or may not realize that there is, or there are, multiple versions of Christianity out there, some more faithful than others. One of those versions is built around the notion that our salvation is largely a single transaction, and once that's done and accomplished, there's not much left to do. If you want to trigger that transaction, the formula is typically a certain sort of prayer. And once that's done, you have your fire insurance, as they call it. And you might go to church occasionally later. You might even help out with a big event from time to time. But there's no significant expectation for the nature, quality, character of your life after that initial transaction is made. Pray the prayer, sign the card, get saved, and not much else matters. That's one version that's out there. And the longer I work as a pastor, the more frequently or the more I meet people who have spent years, even decades, with that sort of framework around their Christian faith. There's another version of the Christian faith, one that is more deeply rooted in Scripture because you'll never find that first version in the Bible, (laughs) where God doesn't desire a single transaction with us. Yes, He desires to initiate a new walk, a new relationship, a new uh, engagement with us. But his purposes are not even remotely limited to a single engagement or a single transaction or a single prayer. Instead, he is at work to draw people to himself, to make himself known, to create a deep covenantal relationship in which his people, having offered themselves to Him and received the grace that He offers, not once, but again and again and again, on and on, a group, His people, offer themselves ever more deeply to Him. Increasingly so. So, this approach is less do the one thing you've got to do so that you're fine for the rest of your life, And more, take the initial step, trusting that Jesus will always have another step in front of you to carry you even more deeply into His life. And if that's the framework, then everything that happens after that initial experience of grace, conversion, the sinner's prayer, the day of salvation, whatever you call it, everything is of increasing significance. 
Because the question here isn't simply, what did Jesus do in my life back then? That's not unimportant. It's very important. You've got to start somewhere. The question is, what is he doing in my life today? Right now? In this moment? How is he at work equipping me and calling me to live in to the vocation that all of his people share to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus and to live in such a way that commends that witness? And if that question isn't on our minds, we're not where we're supposed to be. If that question, how am I increasingly living into Christ's calling to bear witness to what He's done through His death and resurrection, and how am I increasingly living in such a way that commends that witness, that should be a red flag. And you kind of hold those two versions of Christianity out. One of them's a lot easier than the other one, isn't it? Like we almost wish we could just, can't we just go with the transactional approach? Because that would make life a lot easier. I wouldn't have to worry about whether or not I'm actually obeying Jesus today. Wouldn't life be easy if obedience to Jesus was unimportant or insignificant? <laughs> When we come to Acts, the second approach, the second story, is the only story in which the early history of the church makes sense. The apostles never offer us a transactional relationship with God. The apostles never offer us something that could be dubbed fire insurance. The apostles never offer us a Christianity light. They never offer us the sort of thing that you can just sort of do when it's convenient, and the rest of the time do what you want or need to do otherwise. And the reason... They never offer that to us is because Jesus has given them a commission and that commission requires certain, a certain response. It will require them to go places and say certain things. But before that happens, it requires them to prepare. And I think a lot of times, even when we slide into the right story, that second account, that second approach where life is deeply and consistently engaged in the gospel, regardless of what our career or vocation is, we are 24-7 understanding ourselves primarily as the representatives of Jesus. Sometimes in that story... We want to skip immediately to what Jesus is calling us to do out there, and we forget that sometimes what he's calling us to do out there requires a certain amount of preparation in here. Like Before we're ready for the mission, before we're ready to engage, 
there's a certain amount of preparation that must take place first. I can't use the preparation as an excuse for never engaging. (laughs) But we can't skip it either. We come to Acts chapter 1, the second half. We look at how the apostles respond to the promises Jesus makes them earlier in the chapter. It begins to become imminently clear that when Jesus makes promises, he expects his people to prepare. When Jesus makes promises, he expects his people to get ready. Not to sit back and take a passive role and just say, well, let's see what the Lord does but to engage. And preparation is engagement. Now, before we talk about the preparation, we'll do well to remember the promise. And that came to us in chapter 1, verse 8. And Jesus has gathered his disciples just before his ascension. And remember, the ascension is not Jesus like going off to some distant place to hang out for a few thousand years before he comes back to get his church and take them away to some distant place. The, re- the ascension is Jesus going to mission control where he providentially oversees the work of his church to fill the earth with the gospel. So heaven is the, th- the throne room of God, the place where God is enthroned and engaged. Think like a general who is in the strategy room directing the different troops to do their different missions and roles in a larger picture. Think a king who's sending one group of soldiers to this side and another to that side and another in the middle. Like this is, Jesus' role in heaven is the strategic oversight to the apostles, the disciples, the church's mission on earth. So Jesus is, just before he ascends to heaven to oversee the mission of the church, He says this to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And I want you to hear these as promises. Not just predictions, but promises. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Promise number one, you will receive power. You are going to be endowed, equipped, entrusted with strength and power, and it's going to be supernatural, and it's going to be unlike anything you've ever experienced to this point, which is impressive, because they'd spent a lot of time with Jesus. You will receive power, promise number one, and promise number two, you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So locally, domestically, regionally, and globally. You will receive power, you will be my witnesses, then he ascends into heaven, Remember, the angels came along and said, why are you staring off into heaven? Because when Jesus goes to heaven, it doesn't mean we should look to heaven. It means we should look to this world and get ready to do what he said to do. Jesus ascends, and that means the church engages in this world, preparing for the power that he will offer, the power that he will send, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the mission to bear witness to his death and resurrection. And the rest of the chapter is how the disciples prepare for the fulfillment of those promises. They're not, the promi- they're, they're not doing it yet. They haven't, the promise isn't fulfilled. They don't receive power until chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes. And they haven't started bearing witness yet. That comes starting in chapter 2 and from there forward. Chapter 1, Jesus makes a promise in the first half. 
in the second half, the disciples don't just sit back and wait. They wait in an active posture of preparation for the thing that Jesus has promised to do among them. And as followers of Jesus, we go through seasons of preparation and we go through seasons of vocational mission. We, we minister to one another inside the walls. We minister to our neighbors and the nations outside the walls. And we will be ill-equipped for what Christ has called us to do out there if we are not engaged and focused on the preparation for that in here. So what does that look like? What do the disciples do? How do they respond to the promises of Jesus? Number one, they obey him. Straight up, the disciples obey Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 12, they return from Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. He told them, go wait in Jerusalem. So what do they do? They went. They didn't go off somewhere else. They didn't head up to Jericho. They didn't go anywhere else. They obeyed Jesus. Right? Because if they'd gone and waited somewhere else instead of the place where he told them, you think they'd have been there when the Holy Spirit showed up? No. Jesus gives instructions with the expectation that we obey them, knowing that if we obey them, we'll be in the right place when he shows up to do the thing he's going to do. And if we don't obey him, if we don't step into the place where he is at work, where he's called us to be, we won't be a part of whatever he wants to do through us. So when he calls us, when he promises to work through us, if we're unwilling to obey him, don't expect him to work through us. Like if we don't obey him, we're not going to be in a position to experience the joy of a mission fulfilled. The disciples would miss out on Pentecost if they didn't obey Jesus and head to that room. They would miss out. If we could step back to those two approaches, we'll call them, to Christianity, the transactional approach, and let's call the other one the representative approach, where Christ actually expects us to be his representatives in an ongoing fashion. So transactional approach is truncated, it's small, it's barely Christian, it's, it's you know, pray this prayer, follow the formula, get saved so you can go to heaven, and the rest is just details, if that as opposed to a representative understanding of Christianity where Christ actually calls a people to embody his character in a way that commends their witness to his resurrection, which has deep implications for every day of our lives and every moment and every relationship we have. So we hold the two together. Obedience is not emphasized in the first one, is it? Pray the prayer so you can get saved, so you can go to heaven when you die. Who cares about obedience? You can live like the devil as long as you prayed the prayer. And I can't tell you, friends, how many times my heart has been broken when I've been in church settings where people assume that's how this works. And it's a mess. 
It's an absolute mess. And they don't understand why their kids are going off the rails. And they don't understand why their life is not fulfilled in Jesus, like why they don't experience fulfillment in Jesus. I did what I was supposed to do. I prayed the prayer. I joined the church. Followed the formula. But that's not Christianity, is it? God doesn't have a formula for us. He has a calling. He does not have a formula. He has a calling. And the first step, even if we don't understand, I mean, the disciples had no idea what was coming. Nobody says, if we obey him, you know, he'll probably like show up with tongues of fire and rushing winds and we're going to get in power and all of a sudden we're going to be preaching and thousands of people are going to get converted. They had no idea what was coming, but they obeyed anyway. You don't have to understand the plan to obey Jesus. You don't have to understand the implications of his purposes to obey him. Just do what he says. Just do what he says. And if we do what he says, we will be in the right place at the right time to experience the spectacular things he intends to do through his people. We think about this in terms of what's called the great commandment. The commandment, Jesus says, in which all the others are summed up and captured. Love the Lord your God with your whole being, your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? And don't leave that as kind of an abstract principle, but what does this look like today? What does it look like for me to love the people God has put in my life as I love myself? What does it look like for me to love God? Am I offering my time to Him? Am I loving him if I never meet with him? Am I loving him if I never attend to the scriptures? Am I loving him if I'm not participating in the mission to which he's called his people to engage? Am I loving him if I'm not finding ways to build up the body of Christ? And the answer is no, isn't it? We can't disengage from the church and think we love God. It doesn't work that way. We can't step back from all of the things that Jesus cares about and died to accomplish. And somehow, somehow, in that transactional model, which is lots of American Christianity, Somehow, in that transactional model, we can think, we, we've, we've, we've sold ourselves the story. I prayed the prayer, and that means I love God. And I don't have to do a thing he said after that. And that's a lie, friends. That's a lie. It's just not true. And you never, ever, ever find anything like that in Acts or anywhere else in the Bible. If we operate with that kind of transactional framework, where I do this thing for God, and He does this thing for me, I pray this prayer, I follow the script, and He saves me, so I don't have to go to hell, 
I'm good. And we never talk about obedience, and we never talk about holiness, and we never talk about spiritual formation and maturity and what it means to grow in Christ, and the church becomes a place where you catch up with your friends occasionally. That's not what Jesus has for his people. He has something far, far, far more important and satisfying. You can catch up with your friends somewhere else. This is where the mission happens. This is where we prepare to change the world. So am I asking that question on a daily basis? Am I obeying Jesus <laughs> right now? In this moment, with the words that are about to come out of my mouth, am I obeying Jesus? Is my speech marked by love for God and others? Is my time marked by love for God and others? In relation to my spouse, in relation to my children, in relation to my coworkers, in relation to my Sunday school class, in relation to the people I don't like. That's where it gets really tough. Because one of the things Jesus commanded was love your enemies. And so those people, they really get on your nerves. And you'd rather not be around them. And can't we just avoid those folks? They probably voted for the other guy. <laughs> what does it look like to love them? And the answer is, it looks like the cross. Because the cross is Jesus loving his enemies. Because before the cross, we are told we were God's enemies. We were at enmity with him. And Jesus does everything he requires of us. And he does it first. And he bleeds to save his enemies. No obedience. If we don't obey him, we should not expect to experience the goodness that comes with his promises. It's not one of these deals where we're like, hey, Jesus, I want the benefits of your promises with no obedience. That's an insult. So what do the disciples do? They do what Jesus said to do. And in doing that, they are in the right place at the right time, and they are prepared for what he desires to do through them. What else do they do? They devote themselves to prayer, verse 14. They return to Jerusalem about a Sabbath day journey. That's a little less than three-quarters of a mile, so they're not going too far. They enter the city, they go to a room upstairs where they're staying, Peter, John, James, the others, there are certain women who are with them, so they've got, like, there's a group of folks, Jesus' mother, Mary, some of his brothers, you've got family, this is a, a crowd, there's a, we're told a little bit later there's about 120 believers at this point. We've come a long way since then, there's a lot more than 120 out there now, right? <laughs> the gospel's... The gospel is doing its work. We've gone from 120 to however many million, the billions of Christians there are in the world. And what do they do when they get there? Verse 14, all of these, the disciples, Jesus' mother, his brothers, his family, the women who were gathered, 
all of them constantly devote themselves to prayer. Verse 14. This is one of those places I think a lot of us struggle with. Maybe even more now than other periods of time. Maybe not, but maybe so. Because there, there are more distractions in the world than there ever have been before. I know I need to pray, but I got one more Insta story to post. I know I need to pray, but somebody sent me a DM on Twitter. If you're too old for that, maybe you're watching the news or something. I don't know. But you have distractions too, don't you? We are constantly bombarded with more voices and images and videos and options than the human race has ever had before. You know, if you live in a farm in 1800, you got fewer distractions than you do right now, don't you? You go out, do your work so that you can have supper, (laughs) because if you ain't growing it, you probably aren't going to eat. And then you got a little time before the sun goes down to read your Bible, and then you go to bed and get up the next day and do it all again. We have so much more leisure, and that leisure has come with lots of entertainment, and that entertainment has come with lots of distraction. That's not to say it's a sin to be on social media. I shared the stream before we got going today, right? We'll get on there, we'll interact with our friends. The question is, where does the bulk of our energy go? Does it go to the infinite number of things that are presented to us on a daily basis, or does it go to Jesus? Where does the bulk of my energy go? Where is my priority placed? And this, friends, like I'm like I get the, the struggle is real. Meetings and busyness and sports and work and meetings. Did we say that one already? <laughs> like there are things that must be done. And by the end of the day, we're exhausted. And we plan to spend some time with Jesus, to pray and to read the scriptures and to soak ourselves in the means, the normal ways he gives grace. But we get to the end of the day and we've done so much and we're like, it's just easier to veg, isn't it? It's just easier to veg. The disciples didn't only devote themselves to prayer, they constantly, did you catch that adverb? They constantly devoted themselves to prayer. One of the reasons it's difficult for us to devote ourselves to prayer is because we have a truncated understanding of prayer. That truncated gospel, that transactional version of Christianity often comes with a truncated transactional understanding of prayer, by which I mean, dear God, here are the things I need you to do for me today. These people at work are getting on my nerves. I need you to take care of them. I'd really like to get one of those new ones, you know, a new phone or a new one of these. And we sort of treat, treat prayer like it's a Santa Claus Christmas list, don't we? 
Like Jesus is cosmic Santa Claus and he only exists to give us the things we want or think we need. Take care of my problems. Give me the stuff I want. I've said my prayers. Let's get on with it. Transactional, not relational. The history of the church offers us a rich amount of resources for prayer. The Psalms offer us rich resources for prayer. Prayer is not merely, hey God, here's what I need you to do for me. Prayer involves meditating on God's word, reflecting on what he has said in scripture. It involves confessing sin, acknowledging that he's right and we're wrong. It involves expressing gratitude for the ways he cares for us and provides for us. It involves interceding for other people and their needs, particularly our enemies and the people we don't like. You can open up the Psalms, you can open up Acts, and you can read through it, and you could say, you know, I'm, I'm reading through Acts chapter 1, and I'm noticing that the apostles are obedient to Jesus. Lord, won't you help me to be obedient this week? Won't you draw my attention to the moments when I'm not walking in your will? Like, can the scriptures prompt me to pray better? Yes, they absolutely can. And what would it look like for our lives to be a like, like I I can't I can't describe my prayer the way the apostles' prayer is described in this text. Constantly? Like all the time? But what would it look like if the people of God commit to something like this? What would it look like to be constantly devoted to prayer? What would it look like to be constantly offering myself, even when I'm engaged or I'm in one of those meetings or I'm, I'm at work or I'm trying to do something with my kids? Or, you know, what would it look like in all of those moments to be offering myself to God in devotion in each instance? That doesn't mean I'm sort of in a room by myself with my hands folded saying my prayers. It means that when I'm engaged in doing the things that He's called me to do in the relationships He's given me, Am I offering myself to him for his best, for his purposes in those moments? And I think, friends, so many of us never even begin to think of that in terms of prayerfulness. Because we have been enculturated in Jesus is a cosmic Santa Claus Christmas list approach. I said my prayers. I told him the things I needed. We said grace before the meal. What else is there to pray about? But the disciples constantly devote themselves to prayer. Would it change my approach to my life? Would it change my approach to my day, to my relationship, to my vocation, if my life were constantly devoted to God in prayer? Like, if that's my framework, what is the framework of my life? My vocation, my children, or prayerful attendance to God's mind 
Sometimes prayer means being quiet like we did earlier today. Just stop talking. Don't ask for stuff. Just be quiet and listen. What would it look like? How significant would the changes be if I were offered to him and that were the orienting reality of my life? Would I be ready to experience his promises? I think so. Jesus' promises require preparation and a crucial aspect of that preparation is consistent, increasing devotion to prayer. Not truncated prayers, life-orienting prayers. How else do they prepare? They cultivate their community, don't they? The community of these early believers has been shocked. It's been wounded and damaged. One of the insiders, one of the men they all trusted the most, they even let him be the treasurer. Judas has betrayed them and Jesus. And now he's dead. Can you imagine the wound that did to that community? I mean, you know how hard it is when someone who <laughs> you trust or who's a part of your life and your formation in your community is lost. Imagine when that loss is compounded with betrayal. And we sort of, you know, Judas, he's a bad guy in the story. We know that. Sometimes I wonder whether he wasn't trying to faithfully kickstart the revolution. Right? Because remember, in the first century, if you're waiting for the Messiah, you're waiting for a guy with a sword to show up and take it to the Romans. And maybe Judas thought, you know, we just need to get this going. And uh, if I tell the power players where he's going to be, Peter will have a sword. We all know that. And we can get the revolution going. He may have had motives like that. We don't stop to consider that very often. But however it played out, or whatever his motivations were, he's dead, they're shorthanded, and he needs to be replaced. So what do they do? They seek God's wisdom in cultivating their community, in drawing another person into that place of leadership, in restoring what was damaged, in healing what was wounded. The cultivation of Christian community is crucial for experiencing the best in the promises of Jesus. We have attempted, and we continue to work at this, to build the cultivation of community into every level of our ministry. If you think about the discipleship path, worship, connect, serve, three steps, take the next step, there's community happening at each level, isn't there? We gather on Sundays to worship Jesus. There's a certain level of community happening. You feel a certain sense of identity. You come together with people with shared, uh, share, a shared sense of mission and a shared desire to worship. And there's community formation that happens there. There's 
It's not as deep as it is in other levels, right? Because when you get into Sunday school, you take step two and you connect with believers in a smaller group at a deeper level, or you meet with your, your band meeting this week and you share your heart and soul and you pray for one another. Like there's some deeper formation happening when that happens. And then when you go and you serve alongside people, anytime you've ever served alongside people, you know there's an even deeper community formation that happens when you're working alongside another believer. So one of the things we've tried to do with the discipleship path and everything, everything gets organized around the discipleship path. Every ministry, every mission, every small group, everything. Worship, connect, serve. We want to align it. And if it doesn't align, it's a distraction. Because the point is following Jesus. As disciples, as followers, and that takes step one, step two, step three. Notice that's not very transactional. Because it's not focused on the first step, it's focused on where we're going. But if we're not availing ourselves of those opportunities to cultivate deeper, deeper community, relationship, prayerful, Jesus-oriented, gospel-saturated relationships, we're not going to be ready when Jesus gets ready to fulfill his promise. We won't be ready for what he wants to do through us. Because there's no such thing as a solo act when it comes to following Jesus. So what do disciples do? They restore and heal the brokenness in their community so that they're ready. And what will they be ready for? Last aspect of their preparation, they are cultivating their vision of their mission. Why do they bring Matthias in? He will join them as a witness to the resurrection, verse 22. One of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. And notice the word witness correlates directly with the promise of Jesus, doesn't it? You're going to be my witnesses. That's my promise to you. I'm giving you this vocation. I am pledging myself to work through you. You're my witnesses. That shapes your community. It shapes your sense of vocation. It is your calling. This is your commission. This is my promise. The disciples say, we've got to get some people in here to help us out with that. We've got to cultivate these relationships. And the purpose isn't just to hang out. The purpose isn't just, oh, you know, let's just, just chill together for a little bit and catch up on the community gossip. The purpose is the mission. We need someone to join us in bearing witness to the resurrection. You want to prepare for the promises of Jesus? Cultivate a vision of personal witness to the resurrection of Jesus. That's our job. If we're not doing that, we're not following Jesus. If we're not witnessing to the gospel of his death and resurrection, we have lost our vision, we have misplaced our mission, and we have lost our purpose. We have nothing else to do, folks. You can potluck all you want, but if you're not telling people about that God raised Jesus from the dead, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We have one thing to do. It takes preparation, but we have one thing to do and it breaks my heart 
when I look across the landscape of evangelical Christianity and the one thing, the one thing we have to do is not in focus. We focus on so many things. One of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. Church growth isn't about filling the room. Church growth is about more people witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus. It's about Jesus' glory. And it's about their wholeness. Discipleship isn't about feeling good about myself because I met with some people and we prayed for each other this week. That's great. I want that to happen. Never lose sight of this one thing. One of these must become a witness with us to His resurrection. Write that on the wall. Put it on the screens. Put it on the website. Make it the number one thing. We are witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And here's, think about it this way. Like, we're not out there trying to like sweet talk people into the kingdom. Witnesses don't do sweet talk. We're not sitting around, well, you know, I know the whole Jesus died for your sins thing sounds kind of gruesome and, and, and people might be depressed if we tell them they're sinners and, and who can really believe in that some guy came out of a grave 2,000 years ago? Didn't they just make that story up? And I can show you book after book after book with those three things on page after page after page. And people in the church read that garbage. And so we tweak the gospel and we shave off the hard edges. And we take away the blood. We don't want to talk about sin. And we lose the grace of God that comes through the gospel. And we get distracted. We get distracted by good things sometimes, don't we? We get distracted by good things. It's good to gather and share a potluck. But it's not the point. Sunday school, band meetings, committees, administrative boards, trustees, staff parish relations, all of it, everything is aimed at one thing. One of these must become with us a witness to the resurrection. When was the last time you told somebody God raised Jesus from the dead? That's the one thing we have to do. And before the Spirit comes, before the promise is fulfilled, they start preparing. And one of the things that they do to prepare is they articulate and focus on the mission that is before them. They know what's coming. They haven't started bearing witness to the resurrection yet, but they know what's coming, don't they? They know what's coming. And this can happen, friends, in all kinds of places. For eight years or so, I was in college. A little while afterwards, I worked at a barbecue restaurant. And you know how it is when you're working in a place, you know, a restaurant or different kinds of places, especially, you know, a bunch of guys, college students. And there's a lot of talk and there's a lot of relationship and you hang out after work sometimes. 
And it was a joy because after I had been there for six, seven years, I began to see that Jesus brought people to that restaurant to save them. A lot of Jesus talk happened in the kitchen of that restaurant. And I'm, I, met, I know guys who showed up and all they cared about was college party life. And now they're in ministry. And I, I know folks who showed up and they were, they were terribly worried about partying, but you know, they were consumed with just degrees and jobs and, 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 and climbing the American ladder, the, the, dream, the ladder to the American dream and the corporate ladder and all those kinds of things. And they left loving Jesus. And I began to say, like, like, this is the thing. Like, witnessing to the resurrection happens in pulpits? Absolutely. It also happens in, kitchen at bar, in the kitchen at a barbecue place. Or wherever you work. Or around your dinner table. Or with any of the seemingly random people that the Lord Jesus Christ who reigns in heaven brings into your life. We have one thing to do. And we prepare to do that one thing by getting clear on what it is and learning how to do it. It's not hard. Jesus died for our sins and God raised him from the dead. He now reigns in heaven and he requires your faith and your allegiance. It's like 20 words. It's not hard. You don't have to have a great speech. You don't have to be a, a, a skilled orator. Jesus died for your sins. God raised him from the dead. He's king of everything, and he requires you to love him and trust him and obey him. And when you do, you will come into his best. It's good for you. It's not complicated. We pretend it's complicated. We pretend it's complicated, and we pretend you have to have a master's degree to do it. Amen? That's a lie. It's not true. You don't need a master's degree to, prepare, to preach the gospel. None of the apostles had master's degrees. In fact, we're going to get a few chapters later, and people are going to be saying, like, these guys haven't been to school. What are they doing talking about, like, out here in public preaching? Just tell the truth, friends. You don't need a degree. Just go tell the truth. You got to know the truth before you can tell it. And you got to love it before you'll have the courage to. But tell the truth. Don't shave off the hard edges. Don't be a jerk. But be with them. Put a smile. Like it's good. Remember, it's good news. <laughs> it's not bad news, it's good news. Say it with a smile on your face. We have one thing to do. When you get up in the morning, write it on your bathroom mirror if you have. You have one thing to do. You know, like get an index card right on that, put it up there. Don't put it in front of the speedometer, put it, put it somewhere else, but put it on the dashboard of your car or something. One thing. Wesley, John Wesley said this to his Preachers in the early Methodists, he said, brothers and sisters, we have one thing to do, and that is to save souls for Jesus. Everything else is second rate. 
The question for us then, are you preparing to be a part of the promises of Jesus? Are we preparing to be a part of the promises of Jesus? You will receive power. You will be my witnesses. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.